Hi, and welcome to the Sod's Law Podcast with me, Daniel Rosenberg. With the world seemingly crumbling around us with forest fires, flooding and now the bloody coronavirus, I'm really glad that people are able to take some positivity away from listening to this podcast. When I was a kid, Rosenberg summer holidays from years 2000 to 2004 were spent in Cornwall. We always stayed in this incredible family-friendly hotel called the Bedruth and Steps. They had kids' clubs, swimming pools, paths down to the Cornish coast. Absolutely idyllic for me and my two younger brothers. These holidays were pretty formative for me. Without fail, every summer I'd fall madly in love with a different girl. And the summer of 2001 in particular, I swore to myself I'd convince one girl, Rosie Tappin, to like me back. There was one evening at a prepubescent disco thing that I heard one of the world's most iconic love songs for the first time. Teenage Dirtbag by Wheatus. And I knew that if I were able to play this song to Rosie, she'd think I was worth snogging in the ball pool of the Jungle Tumble, at least by next summer. So for my bar mitts for the following March, I begged my family for a guitar. Eventually, I was given this metallic blue Yamaha Pacifica by my incredibly generous Auntie Susie and Uncle Brian. So now, at this point in my life, in 2020, I've been a semi-good guitarist for just over 18 years. I've performed live in front of literally dozens of people. I've busked in the streets and even serenaded my now wife at our wedding, making people cry with my crooning mastery. So, Rosie, if you're listening to this, after all this time, I completely forgot to learn Teenage Dirtbag until about six months ago. Ah, who cares anyway? She doesn't know what she's missing. So, my nostalgia for the Bedroth and Steps wasn't for nothing, as it was at this hotel that we met a pretty unique family. Sandy and Paul Lewis and their two sons, Max and Charlie. Sandy's actually my guest on this week's episode of Sod's Law. I've been told we first met the two boys in the aforementioned Jungle Tumble. Max, the older of the two, fearless, passionate, a born showman, and Charlie, quiet, intense, and extremely protective of his older brother. They were unmissable. Not because Max had Down syndrome, but because of their zest and their huge personalities. From that point on, we stayed in touch as we all grew up, and my mum and dad became good friends with Sandy and Paul. If our family ever had to stay in London for a wedding or anything, we'd stay at the Lewis's. If we were there for a day trip, we'd have lunch with the Lewis's. Now, even though I haven't seen these lovely people at all frequently since my late teens, my brother Ali has maintained a strong relationship with Max in particular. When he moved to London for university, he'd spend time with Max, eventually becoming a tutor of sorts, helping him to be independent and to guide his creativity and his showmanship. Now, I got in touch with Sandy for the podcast as she speaks so well about her experiences raising a child with Down syndrome, even writing a book a few years ago, Living with Max, and I'm really grateful she took the time to talk with me. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with the lovely Sandy Lewis. Tell me a bit about where you grew up. Uh, where did I go? Well, I grew up all over the place. I was born in Singapore. Wow. My dad was in the RAF and he was based in RAF Changi mm -hmm. and I was born in Singapore but only lived there for sort of nine months to a year uh, and I have an elder sister mm -hmm. uh, and shortly after I was born we came 
back to England and we, I think we went to Devon for a bit and then we went up to um, East Anglia and then we went to Yorkshire uh, and then we went to Germany. So I've been all around. All over. Yes. Does that mean you're technically an army brat? Or I'm an uh, army brat, yeah. 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 What was that like? It was amazing, yeah. It gave me a very different perspective on life showed me lots of different cultures and living around the world was uh, a massive uh, educator it didn't help me enormously with my reading and writing right so i think i am mildly dyslexic anyway which they in those days they wouldn't have picked up and we stayed uh, in a place for maybe two years then we moved on and so every time we i changed schools i went to about 12 different schools i was taught to read and write in a completely different way and although I I actually am a writer and I love reading I do think that that probably was the most detrimental thing I think I've caught up now yeah um, but so uh, yeah I don't think it did me any favors but apart from that it was fabulous absolutely fabulous did it mean that you struggled socially if you were consistently having to make yes new groups definitely of friends? definitely so I would arrive and if you can think of you know young children primary school ages and 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 older everyone's um friendship groups were sorted and then I would come along and disrupt that friendship group um which was tough, tough on the people who were there, yeah. tough on me. But I did um, discover ways of making friends. I'm very good at making friends. I love people and I'm very good at forming friendships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I'd like to think I'm really good at meeting people and making people feel at ease and comfortable in my presence. But then, well, it would take me about a year to gain people's trust and then I'd you know have a nice little friendship group and then we'd move yeah (laughs) Yeah. so I think now as an adult I'm really really good at living in my own company in my own world I like my own space I love people and I love socializing with people but I think I am an introvert of sorts and very self-sufficient yeah did that mean that you had um a stronger relationship with your immediate family if you were all traveling as a unit hopping around the country from place to place so your relationship with your sister for example would that have been strengthened by that constant traveling no ironically it wasn't because she went to boarding school she's a few years older than me so yes i had a very close relationship with my my mum and dad um, and then my sister would come along for for holidays Mm -hmm. um i mean it's just a family setup isn't it all families are are different and we are still a very close family but yeah yeah, we weren't we we didn't really grow up together we didn't really go to the same schools right yeah do you still have both your parents no No. my mum died 10 years ago right okay yeah Yeah. did you grow up with a religion in the household with a sense of faith at all I did I did yes so um, in the forces it's very much Church of England and we would go to church Every Sunday, it was uh, very much a... So, so uh, when someone's in the RAF, um, you're usually based on a camp. There were times when we would live in a house outside the camp, but the, the main bulk of the community, education, supermarkets, we had a naffy, and other places of socialising were, were on the camp. 
uh, including the church. And it would be the Church of England and we would go, um, yeah, every Sunday. Uh, my mother was pretty uh, religious, yeah. At what point did you stop travelling and settle into in one place? Was that still mm. in your childhood or was it when you were... No, so we stopped uh, sort of running around the world when I was probably about uh, 13, 14. In fact, my father, he got posted back to Germany again. And I I believe that in the RAF, you're you're allowed to like turn down one... um, Posting? Posting, yes. And at the time, my mother's father had just died and I don't think she wanted to be apart from her family again. And she just said, you know... I really don't want to to go, and so he turned that down. And as a consequence, we we stayed just outside Bath, and we stayed there. And my parents lived there, you know, ever since. Really, mm-hmm. yeah. So we so when I was about yeah thirteen, fourteen, we just stopped traveling. So you were able to have a level of consistency from yes. then until you left school. Yes, yes. And at what point did you leave school? So I went to the local school until I was sixteen, and then I went off to boarding school. Mm-hmm. Um, to a place called Wellington in Somerset to take my A-levels. And then I left school. At what point did you meet Paul, your husband? Ah, so, yes, after leaving school, I went back home and got a job at home, which I circumnavigated to allow me to move to London. I was really desperate to lose, uh, live in London. My sister lived in London. A lot of my schoolmates came from London and lived in London so I just wanted to go where the action was really I felt Mm. that where we lived although very beautiful it's very beautiful uh, around Bath was really very dull and boring (laughs) and I just wanted to get out there and you know find a bit of life so came to London and I was probably here two or three years and then I met Paul one New Year's Eve my friend Wendy um, I was off men in a big way right and she rang me up and said, you're coming out with me tonight. I'm going to pick you up and we're going to go to this restaurant and I'm not having any arguments. So I went off with her and uh, Paul came up and asked me to dance at the end of the sort of, it was, in, it was a, a restaurant with, you know, a New Year's Eve theme with dancing at the end. So when we'd finished our meal, the dancing started and Paul came up and asked me to dance, yeah. And that was that. And that was that. Yeah. So how long after meeting did you settle down? Uh, so we met and got married within eighteen months. Wow. Yeah. And we'll have been married thirty years this May. Wow. Yeah. This might sound like a bit of an odd question, but it is something I do ask when speaking to people about parenting. At what point did the two of you decide, right, now we're gonna start our family? Mm, was it interesting immediate one. or was no, it really the no. type of couple to go? We're waiting, we're too too young for this type of thing. Yeah, so we were married about three years before we had um, any children. Mm-hmm. Um, we had great fun. I mean, in hindsight, I guess it would have been useful to leave a little bit longer maybe. <laughs> I don't know. There was, a, there was a great maternal instinct in me to have children and I definitely wanted children. I think Paul just came along for the ride and now is, you know, the most incredible father I wouldn't say he was reluctant. He was just kind of cautious about parenthood. But it was always something that I definitely, definitely wanted to do. It's a tough one because I I was always a very family-oriented person. I had it in my head because I was from such a big, young family that I wanted a family from a relatively young age. And 
I didn't seek someone to have a family with, but I, I found somebody who also had the same values, mm-hmm. the same mm-hmm. idea of what a family should be. But then when it came to settling down, we think, well, pro- we probably should wait. Mm-hmm. And then by the time we thought, now it's probably time to start, we thought, well, well we don't have enough money. We yeah. don't have enough this, don't have enough that. And it was my mother-in-law who said to us, well, why are you waiting if you want that? Because you're never going to have enough money. You're never going to have enough money. We, we had the <laughs> same conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We've not got enough money. We're not going to make this work. And we just thought, well, other people do it. And so, you know, we just got on with it. Yeah. So it was three years after getting married that you yes. get pregnant with Max. No, I, I had a, a miscarriage. Oh, so right. I got pregnant and then I had a miscarriage and then, then I got pregnant with Max. Yeah. What was that like for you? Yeah, so, that was just yeah. pretty awful. Yeah. I mean, in those days, um, we didn't have the internet and we didn't have social media. And whilst everyone feels that social media is a bit of a demon in our lives, I think that in some situations it can actually be very helpful so I felt very very isolated when I had my miscarriage it was kind of something that people didn't really talk about I didn't know how to start the conversation with anybody I, I, I know my you know my mum came up to be with me but she didn't actually mention the miscarriage once when she was staying with us and I, I you know I don't think that that was because I just don't think she knew how to start the conversation of like you know how are you all I, it, so I think that if I if I'd had um, some access to something on the internet, I think I would have felt that I could share my experience and learn from others. Um, but as it is, I felt quite isolated. Yeah. So we've got two kids, and after our second kid was born, Victoria had six miscarriages. That's we a trying lot. for a third, and by number six she still felt just as isolated as after the first one because even though it's 20, 2019, started 2019, oh, really? it was the last That's one, nobody talks about it. No. Even now, one of the things that we're trying to get out there with this on some of the episodes is to talk about topics that are incredibly common but for some reason still taboo or just shied away from. And since opening up about it, Victoria has told me that she feels less isolated doesn't yes. make it go away no ever. not at all and um, lots of my friends because you know i'm in my 50s now and lots of my friends uh I, I have a friend who had multiple miscarriages and we all talk about these things now but we don't we never spoke about them mm. when we were younger I, I maybe we just didn't have the same uh experience of life age i don't know what, what you know maybe well, you just feel less of a sense and... of appreciation of mental health yes that's true very very true that trauma is more in the spotlight now than it ever has been Uh, maybe saying the issues that come along with social media it is a double-edged sword but the blessings that you can have by connecting with so many Mm. people is that you can always find a community if you look or are able to stand up and ask i think that's right connection and community are are, you know very very valuable in our society i think Mm. yeah how long after the miscarriage did you get pregnant with max well luckily paul only i only have to wash his socks and i get pregnant so <laughs> <laughs> literally so three yeah. months later right. yeah i was pregnant with max yeah and was that a normal pregnancy yeah totally yeah. normal yeah i had no idea that he had down syndrome <laughs> mm. yeah so he's he's born yeah and t- tell me what that's like, I don't know if it's something that you would be able to know immediately or if it's something that's diagnosed. Well, yes, they handed later. him to me 
And I looked at him and I said, does he have Down syndrome? I yeah. just knew immediately. Um, when I was carrying him, uh, he didn't move very much. I don't know about other people, but when you are pregnant, I was just perpetually anxious about things. Uh, I just wanted a live baby and it seemed an awfully big stretch, big journey to get there. So I was constantly anxious. But I just remember thinking about other people and their discussions about their babies and what they were doing in their tummies. And I was thinking, gosh, Max doesn't really do that. I mean, he used to move every day, so I knew he was still alive. And of course, subsequently, I went on to have another baby and he used to rummage around in me like he'd lost his keys in his handbag. I mean, yeah. you know, he really did move. And that, you know, that does show you the... Because Max has a very low muscle tone, he was he just wasn't very active at all. So I kind of thought there might not be something that mm -hmm. should be going on here that is going on here. I don't know. Anyway, yes, he was born and given to me. And I said, does he have Down syndrome? And I was poo-hooed like... You're really tired, don't be silly. But I think they suddenly thought, oh, she's got a point there. Mm -hmm. And it was about nine o'clock at night and um, things went a bit quiet. And then they, it was an NHS hospital and they took me to a private room. And I thought, hmm, hang on. That, mm. that doesn't quite match up, does it really? Because he, he came out in four hours. It was a perfectly normal birth. Um, and then about two o'clock in the morning, uh, a doctor came and said yeah I yeah we think we think that he has down syndrome and they you know have to do a specific blood test to determine but she said you know we're pretty we're pretty sure yeah what was that like to be told that news um I think very mixed feelings I remember at the time just being so relieved that I've got this baby out of me yeah. I was so terrified about the birthing process which is terrifying yeah very natural. Everyone does it, or all, all women, you know, do it. But <clears throat> it was it was pretty pretty terrifying. Uh, and I, so I can remember the most enormous relief to not be pregnant anymore. I didn't really enjoy being pregnant. Um, and I had the most ferocious love for this little baby. You know, he was mine, and I just had an overwhelming sense of love for him. Uh, so then when she came and she told me this, part of me was like, well, all right, so what? Kind of, you know, he's mine. And But then there was also a feeling of that it wasn't, re that it wasn't quite real, that I was in like a, a dream and that, you know, there wasn't... I think I was really tired and just very... I felt very sad, I think. Was there the same... That nowadays, as soon as you go to the doctor after finding out that you're pregnant and you go down the path of antenatal care, mm. you're told about all the tests they do and the, the certain scans and the measurements they do to determine likelihood or mm. high or low risk for Down syndrome. So it's crammed down your throat mm. as soon as you find out you're pregnant. Was there anything like that back then? I, In hindsight, I'm really glad that there wasn't because um, I think to have to make the decision to terminate a baby that by by the time you'd know for sure you'd have to then mm. you would have had to have given birth i wasn't asking with regard to termination I, no no I no I, I know my mind, I, I, yeah. I mean the thing of 
determination, if you put put that aside, and, and I am respectful of, of all people's views on um, becoming a parent or not becoming a parent, when I um, was pregnant, I, I suppose I just felt that that, that was it, that, that I was pregnant and there was no, no going back. There were blood tests. You could have an amniocentesis test. Um, but I was very young, and so I didn't fit into any kind of category. I can remember that I spoke to a friend of mine who was a doctor, saying, you know, do you think do you think I should push for some tests, you know, to see what's going on? And she, you know, just tried to reassure me that I wasn't in that sort of demographic and not to worry, really. And remembering that the those tests then were very rudimentary, they're far more sophisticated now. And scanning was, again, you know, you just saw sort of a, a, a black mass with a bit of a blob yeah. whereas now I'm sure they are absolutely amazing so again it was sort of rummaging around in the dark so I wasn't wasn't really given any kind of access to those sorts of tests and I think I in my heart I just felt here we go this is this is it I'm sure if I'd really pushed for them I could have had them but I, I didn't mm. and on the NHS they, they certainly weren't offered yeah so you're given this news at two in the morning by the doctor. What then? Are you offered support? Are you told what to expect? What next? Yeah, that's quite kind of a, a sad story, really, in that I think I, I really hope that it's improved because the counselling or non-existent counselling and care that I got when I was in hospital was was very, very inadequate and disappointing. Um, I think somebody told me, and I'll quote them, they said, if you're lucky, he'll be able to go to the shops and buy you a punnet of strawberries. But that'll be kind of it. One of the nurses volunteered some advice to put him in a home, go on holiday with your husband, come back, get pregnant again and have the baby that you want. Many nurses couldn't actually look me in the eye when they came into the room um so it was it was yeah it was a pretty sad experience there was one midwife who actually was there to deliver max and she came back the following morning to see me and she was really lovely uh, and there one or, were one or two other very lovely nurses but the the overall experience was one of shame and disappointment and the, the the majority of the staff that surrounded me were disappointed for me and it it I'd felt that I had done something wrong I had produced something inadequate what was this like for your relationship with your husband together were you able to pull together throughout this yeah time? definitely so I think uh, Paul wasn't around when the um the, the doctor came in to see me at two o'clock in the morning and I think I, I rang him and he was pretty traumatised, even though obviously he was there when I said, you know, does he have Down syndrome? And he was very floppy um, and it, you know, it's pretty obvious that something wasn't quite how it should be. And so we had a conversation uh, and, you know, I, I said to him, right, you know, he's here, he's our son, let's just get it together and get on with it. And the next morning he came into the hospital and we, you know, we were both still reeling, no doubt. But yeah, from then on, 
we've just been a power team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me a bit about what Max was like as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for for Max, um, I think the best gift he's been given is his personality. He has the most overwhelming personality. He is very engaging and charming and he loves to be the center of attention he just needs an audience of one and he will perform he um, is looking the whole time to impress people and make people look at him and smile at him and think he's funny so his personality is overwhelming I don't know where he got it from because the rest of the family (laughs) are you know, bookworms, very quiet, introvert people, whereas he is all singing, dancing, getting out there and strutting his funky stuff. Has he always been like that? Always. Yeah. The minute he came out, he was like that. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. How many years later did you have Charlie? So, yeah, two two years later, we just um, felt that we wanted to crack on and have a, another baby. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, Charlie came along. And how was Max as a big brother? <laughs> so um, Charlie's since told me that any opportunity Max got, he'd give him a jolly good whack, <laughs> which I didn't realise at the time. I think, yeah. you know, it was a big struggle for Max to have this baby arrive, this yeah. really gorgeous, cute baby, uh, as any any first child has when a second one arrives. So I think he, he definitely struggled with that. And I suspect that his overwhelming personality really muscled in there and combined with having down syndrome i think poor old charlie took a back seat throughout his entire childhood just because of necessity and he has a quite a he runs sort of quiet and deep so he's quite a quiet person but they they got on really well and um, we got into a little routine of a you know a crew a little family and uh I uh, was a, um, a stay-at-home mum, and uh, I'd like to think that, you know, they had a really, really happy, happy childhood. What were some of the key things that people who haven't had a child with Down syndrome maybe wouldn't have known about or could appreciate? I think I think having Max is a really good barometer on other people, so some people just couldn't cope with him and therefore would disappear into the background and that's fine by us you know we surrounded ourselves by people who could cope with him and had big hearts and could tolerate the situation which you know there are diamonds in the world and we definitely definitely came across some some lovely lovely diamonds but quite a lot of society I think through fear and ignorance um found him difficult to deal with and found the need to in front of him discuss him and his presence on this earth and how come he was here which i i'm still baffled by really yeah. has max ever discussed himself in that way after things like that has happened is he's at his question that so yeah definitely i mean max is has down syndrome and all that comes with that but he's actually a very bright yeah uh young man and I think when he came to be about maybe 13, 14, he would start to address it and he would shout at people in the street and say, oh, what are you looking at me for? Yeah. You know? And we would talk about him having Down syndrome 
I think he's very aware of the limitations that he, he has, but I think he's actually very proud of, of who he is, and that includes having Down syndrome. So yeah. he's slightly baffled by, they're like, you know, he, rather like, you know, in Harry Potter, people who aren't wizards that are referred to as muggles, yeah. you know, he calls people who don't have Down syndrome, I can't remember what it is he calls, does he call them? Straits, I think he calls them, or something really, just to differentiate that yeah, they're not part yeah. of the gang. And poor them, poor yeah. them. What was school like for him? Did he go to like the local school, or did he go yes, to a school specifically? Yes, so it, it's interesting that, you know, perhaps in hindsight, if we could have our time again, we yeah. would do things differently. And at the time, we wanted to do the very best for both of our children. And so we moved to an area with an outstanding school. And it is, was an outstanding school and we were in the catchment area and off he off he went to that school and they were really lovely and welcoming and obviously we made sure that he was welcome before he arrived but because it was a quite an affluent area and all children were not only supported by their parents but tutored max really struggled to keep up with everybody so for the first sort of two or three years in infant school it was all pretty idyllic then the, the, the gap between him and his peers became very, very apparent. And he, although enormously welcome in the school, spent more and more time with his support worker in the corridor as opposed to in the classroom. And all of his classmates were lovely to him, but he didn't really form proper friendships and he became quite isolated and depressed which is terribly sad because they were all really lovely. All the parents were really lovely. He would be invited round for play dates. And I think the class had a huge affection for him because of his personality. But genuine friendships just were not made. Did he then move on to a different school? Or? Yes. So it became apparent that he was depressed. And mm. so we decided to look into special schools and we found a special school that was uh, would be a stopgap before a secondary special school and we went along and it was it was really really lovely and so we decided to move him and immediately he bounced back and became his old effervescent self so we we felt it was absolutely the right thing to do in hindsight, we would probably sh we should have probably sent him to a school in not such an affluent area where he wasn't so obviously at the bottom of of the food chain, if you like, yeah, a yeah. crude way of putting it. But if he had more of a chance with, you know, if if for instance there were children where English wasn't their first language, something like that, that would have helped enormously in the fact that he could have just played with them. Uh, I think in, in hindsight, we, we made the wrong move then, even though we did with the best uh, you know, of intentions. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about how he's always loved to perform. <laughs> At what point did he start going off into actual theatre productions? And was it something that was always there? Because I know that he was involved in Chicken Shed. Yes. Was that the first company he was involved in? Yes. So... Very shortly after he was born, I, I don't know what lovely person actually told me, um, but they said, put his name down 
at Chicken Shed, which is a theatre in Southgate. And it's a theatre that is a fully functioning, normal theatre, but it in, in welcomes absolutely everybody. So it's not a theatre for people with special needs. It is a normal working theatre that is just very all-inclusive. So I put his name down when he was literally like a year old. And so when he was seven, which is when they start their first kind of workshops for young children, mm. off he went. Yeah, it was the first time that they were like, yeah, bye, see ya. What, what, am, I, am I not allowed to come and sit with him? And No, he'll be fine, you know. And off he went. And he is always in that environment, uh, in the environment of Chicken Shed, behaved as himself. I, don't, I think he's always been able to just be himself there. He hasn't had to try to fit in to another world. That world, he fits in just fine. How did he land his role in Notes on a Scandal? Ah, so you'd think that was because he was at uh, Chicken Shed or that his dad, you know, um, works in the movie industry, but it had nothing to do with that. It, it, literally through another avenue, they were looking for actors with Down syndrome to audition for this role, uh, Richard Eyre wanted to find um, an actor in sort of the, the North London area because they were going to film in Hampstead. And so um, off he went into town. I think it was somewhere in Soho. He went off to, for this audition. And by that stage, he was 13 and seriously into acting and seriously wanting a role and was savvy enough to understand that it was, you know, big business and I remember we got there and he he was just absolutely determined to get that role. He really was. And he went into that room and he nailed it. And I was just so impressed with him that he wanted something and he went off and he grabbed it. And I, I thought, wow, you know, with all the things that you have to deal with, you can do that. I was pretty impressed. Did he enjoy the whole process of it? Loved every minute of it. Um, I have to I have to say that he was still a diva <laughs> <laughs> all the way through it, you know, which is like, crikey, you know. But yeah, he'd have a strop every day and every day on set. People were very tolerant of him and he managed to get, you know, his own green room. Kate Blanchett gave up her flat for him to rest in yeah. and... I mean, what an operator. Yeah. He really, he is an operator. He's just he's been an operator since the minute he was born. Mm. And so yeah, he um he loved it. And I have to say we it was a really unique time in our lives as a family. It was it's pretty special to be part of a Hollywood film. Yeah. And so yeah, it was great fun. Tell me a bit about the theatre company he's been working with more recently and how he got involved in Electric Umbrella. Ah, so Electric Umbrella, an absolutely fantastic charity. A family friend who is his tutor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Ali. mentioned that in the intro. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he had uh, a friend that he went to school with who um, was involved in this charity and talked to us about it and suggested that Max might like to go. And as it was very accessible, just up in, near Watford, off the two of them went and um, Max just had the most wonderful time, you know, singing and being around people 
with special needs, but also the people involved in Electric Umbrella are very unique people, very, very special people. So he had Ali and he had, you know, all the people from Electric Umbrella. Yeah, and he just had the most fabulous, fabulous time. Tell me a bit about what Charlie's been up to. So Charlie, yes, rather amusingly, I, I was referring to Max giving him the odd thump when I wasn't looking. Yeah. So Max is probably about five five foot if he's lucky. Charlie is six foot four. So <laughs> as they were growing up, Charlie just got taller and taller and taller. So I, I think the thumping had to stop at some stage. Yeah. And I think it must be, you'll have to ask Charlie, but I should imagine that it's a very unique experience growing up in a family where one of the family members has special needs. It's, it's a bit of a slam dunk. There's not a lot you can do about that. And when it comes to hierarchy and the pecking order, you know, it's pretty difficult to argue with how things need to be going in a pushchair or just going to bed even though Max was older you know like it's yeah. just it, all of that family dynamics that I remember in my family about bigger sister and hierarchy doesn't quite work with a child with special needs doing chores well were we really hard on Charlie when Max couldn't do chores very well you know how it's all a, a, a balance that I suspect we failed badly at but you know we, we were just doing doing our best really it would be lovely to go back and do it all again and I do a few things differently but Charlie has just turned out amazingly well <laughs> quite quite extraordinarily well and you know I hope that uh, he's okay he's okay <laughs> with the whole thing but um yeah, he's he's very academic, and while he actually didn't really take to school, he doesn't like any institutions of any kind, so he didn't really like school very very much. He's done very very well academically, and he we think there's something in his 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 DNA. His ancestors are Russian Jews, so we really think that there is something in his DNA that he picked up Russian, found it really easy. And so kind of went with that, did a degree in Russian and then a master's in Russian politics. Wow. Uh, went to live in Russia for a little while. Met his girlfriend in Russia, even though she lives up the road in Southgate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, he's done, done extraordinarily uh, well. And, you know, we're enormously proud of him. And has, he really has been the most fantastic brother to Max. Amazing. So... How old is Max now? He's 26. He'll be 26. 27 in March. And in the last couple of years, I know he's had a couple of health issues. Yes, yes. So when he was born, he had a hole in his heart. And we went through such trauma trying to decide what to do. We could have just gone in there and closed the hole. But the chances of him dying from the operation were higher than if we left it alone. And it was something that plagued us throughout his entire life, really. We went for checkups and we would constantly question our gut instinct to avoid any operation through a fear of, you know, losing him or making the wrong decision. 
And obviously, you know, doctors were advising us the whole time until recently, this time last year, we went for not only his normal checkups, which is an echo, chest x-ray and uh, an ECG, but he had an MRI scan and that picked up something that wasn't right. In fact, he was gravely ill. We'd always been told that anything that, if it were to go wrong, would go wrong really gradually. But, you know, doctors are not um, gods, and it would appear that over a period of time he had become gravely ill without us realising, and he had what we now know is an enormous hole in his heart. Uh, in fact, the surgeon, when he operated on him, just couldn't believe he was still alive. It was so big. And he had a faulty valve. The valve was very near the hole. And because of that, it weakened and struggled throughout the years of him growing up. Um, we've been told that we still made the right decision because the valve not only had weakened, but was um, genetically weak as well. So he would have had to have the valve replaced. So in fact, he's had open heart surgery once. He would have had to have it twice yeah, if we had yeah. sort of had the, the hole repaired. Anyway, it was completely taken out of the decision. It was completely taken out of our hands. When he was having uh, this an echo, the conversation between the medical people just didn't feel quite right to me it sounded there was something that I wasn't happy with and sure enough we then got a letter where it was intimated that he, you know an operation in the future might be necessary and then we got a telephone call just saying you know lovely way we'd like to offer Max surgery and then literally and we'd like him to come in on Thursday <laughs> so um it was a really awful traumatic time for all of our family but it was just an incredible time too um so he was supposed to go in for i think between five and seven days and he ended up being in for 13 because he got a, a bug but he basically had open heart surgery they patched up his hole they put a patch on it and they replaced a valve and as a family paul charlie and charlie's girlfriend cats we all kind of you know, came together and worked really hard, um, had a rotor system so he was never on his own in the hospital, stayed with him every night. It was an incredible time. It was a terrible time, really terrible time at the same time. But as a consequence, he did survive. And a year later, he's just had a checkup. And quite astonishingly, his heart is as normal as yours and mine now. It's working as well. So the patch isn't leaking, it's work, you know, it's fine, and the valve is working very well, and his heart, the left side of his heart has gone back to a normal, it's slightly enlarged, it's gone back to the right size. Just incredible, absolutely incredible what what doctors can do. And it was at the, the Royal Brompton, they're just an amazing, amazing bunch of people down there. The atmosphere there is really lovely and kind, and it was quite an experience, yeah. So what is Max's focus right now? What does he do with himself at this point in time? Well, obviously, his main aim is to be a mega superstar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he wakes up in the morning and that's the first thing he thinks about how he's going to achieve that. Okay. But he is taking a um, foundation degree mm -hmm. at uh, Chicken Shed in creative arts. 
So he, they're just amazing. They're so supportive of him. And because of his heart and because of um, his learning difficulties, he does it quite part-time. But yeah, he goes to Chicken Shed three times a week and spends his time, the majority of his time there, yeah, learning to be the superstar that he'd like to become. Do you have any advice for any parents or prospective parents about what it's like having a child with Down syndrome? Uh, yes, I, I would say to behave with your child exactly as you would any other child. I think we slightly indulged Max <laughs> because it was easy for us as well as him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, it's far easier to just go the short route and and um, sort a situation out rather than thinking over the hill and taking the long way round that's more painful. I would just say to love and cherish them as you would any other child and allow them to grow. And I mean, Max every single day has surprised me. And even now he surprises me. And I take enormous encouragement from him and the way that he behaves in the world. And I do think that having a child with, with Down syndrome will make you grow as a person and make you open up your world into thinking about the world in a completely different way and can only be a good thing for you. Mm -hmm. we're, we're all of us only here the once. And yeah. you're, if you are a, a parent who has a, a child with Down syndrome, your journey is going to be slightly different to everyone else's, but it's going to be an amazing journey. Now, almost more importantly, do you have any advice or key things to stress for, for people who encounter or meet people with Down syndrome and how they should be and not have any incorrect assumptions? Yeah, so I think the first thing to do is to try and put aside any fear that you may have and to approach that person as you would anyone else and not have any fixed preconceived ideas about how they're going to behave or what they're going to do. Uh, have an open heart and show them compassion and be gentle and give them lots of time. People with Down syndrome need a lot of time to process thoughts and feelings. And yeah, watch out because they're cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're not a stay-at-home mum anymore because obviously, well, Charlie's off on her way, isn't yeah. he? Max, is, is he also away from home? So Max were, um, lives most of the time in supported living just mm -hmm. up the road, yes. Okay. He is here quite a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, he does. He, he lives up the road. So what do you do with your time now? Well, until recently... Uh, I used to work uh, for Mumsnet, mm -hmm. but I was made redundant. So <laughs> You can talk about that if you'd like. Well, here I am at 55. I've worked at Mumsnet for eight years, and I have recently been made redundant. Many people are made redundant. Many people have been made redundant more than once. It's tricky at my age, also being a woman, also having spent probably 15 years as a stay-at-home mum. So it is a challenging way forward. I'm really lucky. I live in central London and there are lots of opportunities, um, I'm sure, out, out waiting for me out that door. Um, so who knows what will who knows what will happen? I have a, uh, a project that I'm doing on Instagram, mm -hmm. which I started about a year ago. And again, it all stems from Max. You know, Max gave me the confidence to write my book. 
and Max kind of, he loves a project and is always getting on with something. And so I think I too always love a project. So the project I do is that a, I have an Instagram account called Aging With Style. Mm-hmm. And every day I post a photograph of what I'm wearing. Um, and I love clothes, always have loved clothes. And I love clothes that are slightly quirky and... I love customizing and yeah, just pushing the boundary slightly. But what I what I want to do, what I want to achieve is to encourage other people, other women of my age demographic to look at their style and perhaps reassess their wardrobe. And I hope by posting a picture of myself every day, it gives them some tips on how they can wear the clothes that they have. I have a very extensive wardrobe, uh, mainly because... I love cruising charity shops and shopping on eBay. So I do have a... And also, uh, I have no pride. I take any hand-me-downs from anyone. People give me clothes. I just love it. And I can I love customising them and adapting them and making them work. It's, I, it's a real thrill. I really enjoy it. So I, it would be really nice if I could do something that's attached to that, really, that that sort of starts something, a journey somewhere. Amazing. So that that's at aging with style, all one word. So it's uh, aging with style. Yeah. Fantastic. So my blog is agingwithstyle.net mm-hmm. and the Instagram tag is just yeah, at agingwithstyle. Fantastic. And your book, what's the title of the book? So Living with Max. And that's available? That's available on Amazon. Yeah. It's out of print now, but you can get secondhand copies. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for thank doing you. this with me. And I apologise that this is the only time I've been here probably in the last 10 years. <laughs> well, you're welcome anytime. Thank you so much. Thanks for checking in with us this week. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sandy. Check her out online by searching for Aging with Style. Or you can find copies of Living With Max on Amazon. On next week's podcast, I'll be talking to one of my favourite humans, the wonderful Shlomi Abenson. We talk about growing up as a very orthodox Jew in Manchester, maintaining his faith during times of incredible grief and his unique and inspirational attitude to life. Don't forget, Mike Hertz is cycling from Manchester to London on the 24th of April. That's just over a month away now, in memory of his wife, Saima raising money for the Encephalitis Society. Please head over to the Just Giving page by Googling Cycle for Saima, spelt S-A-I-M-A, and donate today. If you have a unique or interesting story to tell or you know anyone who has something they'd like spreading to the world, please do get in touch. Our email address is pod at sodspod.com. Please do subscribe and share the Sods Law podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others so far, tell your friends, your colleagues, your family, anybody. You can get it everywhere podcasts are available. You can even leave a review on iTunes if you'd be so kind. Have a look at the podcast website, sodspod.com, for more information. And on social media, you can find us with the handle at sodspod. Make sure you have a fantastic day. And thanks for listening.